0: Good morning, everybody. You'd like to turn over to Mark chapter 9. Mark, the ninth chapter. We'll begin by reading our text. When you get there, pick up in verse 14, Mark chapter 9. <coughs> Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when he came, speaking of Christ, to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. The scribes are kind of bullying them at this time. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, what question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered, and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Now, you imagine being this boy's father. He's displaying all the signs of an epileptic seizure, all the symptoms of it, but the reality of the situation is he is demon-possessed. And every once in a while, this spirit will grab hold of this boy, and it tears him, which means it would throw him down on the ground. And then he would start gritting his teeth like he was mad, and his spit would foam around his mouth. And after it was done with him, he'd pine away, he'd wither away. He looked like he was dead. And we'll read here in a minute, sometimes when they get near a body of water, the spirit would take that boy and throw him in the water and sometimes into a fire. Can you imagine the terror this man lived with? It's his son. Can you imagine the terror this boy lived with? This is a very hard thing. And he says, I've come to your disciples and they could not cast him out. The disciples were a failure right now. We are beyond human help. Things are very, very dire And we can't find find anybody to help. We've come to you. Verse 19. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought it unto him. And when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said of a child. This boy had been possessed from birth. Verse 22, and oft times it had cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But listen to these words, this man says. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Did he know who he was talking to? No, he certainly did not. Or he wouldn't have said, if you can do something, help us. No, he doesn't know who he's talking to. Right now. When Jesus saw, I'm sorry, look at verse 23. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, Come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Now, when I was reading this story, I could feel the desperation of the father in this story. You all have kids, most of you do. Your child's afflicted, your child's in trouble, and you can't help. You can't solve the problem, you can't find human means to help. That's a dire situation. This man was absolutely desperate, and he shows that. Look back at verse 14. It says, And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. The Lord's walking down from the Mount of Transfiguration where he was glorified in front of Peter and James and John. And the scribes are now, they're questioning his disciples. And really, they're bullying them, right? They're trying to intimidate them. What do you think they're questioning them about? What they just saw. This man with a demon-possessed boy, he brings his son to the disciples, says he's demon-possessed. And in Matthew chapter 10, that first verse, the Lord said to his disciples, I'm going to give you power to cast out devils and demons. And he brings his boy before the disciples, and the disciples can't do it. They're failed. And so the scribes, always looking for an opportunity to discredit our Lord, they seize on this, right? Maybe he's not as powerful as everybody thinks he is. Maybe he doesn't have these abilities that everybody says he doesn't. He goes over to the disciples because they're not afraid of them, right? And these scribes start bullying the disciples. They're questioning the disciples. And I can only imagine the way this this plays out. I imagine the Lord creeps up on the scribes as they're bullying the disciples, and they don't see him coming, right? He comes back from the rear. And look at verse 16. And he asks the scribes, what question ye with them? So he comes up behind them while these scribes are bullying his disciples, and he says, what question ye with them? It's not them you're seeking to discredit. It's me. You got questions? You want to question somebody? Question me right here. Can you imagine being a scribe at that time? you imagine the terror of these men? They weren't afraid of the disciples, but now they have the Lord saying, you got a problem? I'm right here. You got a question? I'll answer your question. I'm right here. Now, I'm sure you all have seen a situation like this before. You've seen something where two people get tense in kind of a public place, and one of them clearly is the more dominant figure, and that dominant figure is kind of offended against. And you figure this lesser figure, he's about to get it, right? This dominant figure is going to go after him. And what do you do, right? You don't want to attract any attention to yourself. You don't want that dominant figure who is angry to turn his anger towards you, right? So you'll watch, right? You want to see what happens. But I bet nobody in this multitude who is watching, nobody said a word, not a word. Everybody, a hush fell over the crowd. We don't want to draw his anger towards us, right? But look what happens here. Verse 17. And one of the multitude answered. Nobody was speaking to him. The Lord was about to give it to these scribes, and all of a sudden he pipes up the father of this boy who is demon-possessed and said, Master... I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And I'm sure everybody in the multitude was thinking, why are you talking right now? Right? You don't want to draw his anger towards you. And yes, this man was taking a risk. This man was acting with reckless abandon because he was desperate. Yes, he might get angry at me. Yes, I might draw his ire at this time. Yes, all these things are true. But right now, my son is demon-possessed, and there's no one to help. Luke's account, we find out this is his only son, my only child. This demon is tearing him. And come what way, whatever it may be, I've heard this man can cast out demons, so I'm going to bring my son to him. With reckless abandon, he came to Christ, despite what he was seeing. I can't think of a greater commendation a man could receive at the end of his life. If when he dies, you could say of that man, with reckless abandon, he pursued Christ. He came to him, he believed upon him, with everything he had, all caution to the wind, with absolutely no reserves, with no plan B, he went after Christ and he clung to Christ and he trusted Christ. I think this is the greatest commendation a man could receive in this life. It's all by the grace of God, but yet what a commendation. And the reason this man did this, the reason he acted with such reckless abandon and coming to the Master was for this reason is because he was desperate. He had reached the end of his rope and he was in utter desperation. And here's my point in all this, folks, we're born into utter desperation. We are born sinful, and we are born wicked, and we are born against God, anti-God, without strength and ungodly. And He is a God of holiness. He is a God of righteousness who cannot accept sin. They can do only one thing with sin but punishment. And we are anti-God. We are by nature against God. That is a desperate situation, an absolutely desperate situation. Here's what I'm talking about here. Look at verse 17. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit. You know what that means, dumb? It means speechless. We are in a desperate situation, and folks, we're speechless. We don't have an excuse. We don't have an excuse for the way we are. If I end up going to hell, I have no excuse. We are a speechless people. Now, let me see if I can give you an example of what I'm talking about here. Turn over to Matthew chapter 22. We'll read of another man who was speechless. Matthew 22, and look at verse 13. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot, and, oh, I'm sorry, verse 11. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Now what happened? This man was at the wedding feast for the king's son. And there was one only one appropriate garment to be worn at the king's son's wedding. That was the king's garment. That was it. To be received, to be accepted there, you had to be wearing the king's garment. And there wasn't no excuse for anyone not to be wearing the king's garment because it was freely provided at the door. It cost you absolutely nothing. And this man strolls in with his beggarly rags on, and he draws the attention of the king. And the king says, why aren't you wearing a wedding garment? It's free. It's provided at the door. It's the only one I can accept. I've said that. Why are you wearing this? Where's your wedding garment? He didn't have an excuse. What could he possibly say? Well, his situation gets desperate, but he sees his desperation too late. Look at verse 13. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are cold, but few are chosen. This man was in desperation and the whole time he didn't know it until it was too late. He was speechless. He did not have an excuse, but it was too late. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth had already come. Now, what's this all about? Look back at verse 1 of Matthew 22. This is a parable. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. Now, if you want to know what this thing we call reality, this thing we call time, Every second of every day, what this is all about. This is about the king, God the Father, making a marriage for his son. This king is going to glorify his son. I'm going to have a marriage for my son. I'm going to have a wedding for my son. And I'm going to invite people and we're going to have a big feast. And everybody's going to look at my son and everybody's going to glorify my son. And everything that happens in this world, you want to talk about the fall, you want to talk about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you want to talk about every second of every day, here's what's happening. God the Father is glorifying His Son. That's what's going on. That's why everything happens in every event, in every second. It is the glorification of Jesus Christ, and Christ is glorifying His Father. That's what's going on. What's God concerned with? He's concerned with Jesus Christ. That's who he's concerned with. That's where his love is at. that's where his concern is at. It is in his Son in his glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything makes sense in that light. Once you take yourself out of the center of the universe, and you put Christ there? Because that's where he is. Everything else makes sense. This is all working for his glory, not mine. But that's what this king's doing. He's glorifying his son. Look at verse three. So what does he do? <coughs> And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. And listen to this. And they would not come. God the Father has sent his gospel to this world. And the gospel message is this. This is the general call. Sinner, come to Christ. Come. He is the savior of sinners. You can't save yourself. Come to Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is the natural reaction? Notice what it says, and they would not come. It doesn't say they couldn't, although that is true of the natural man. He cannot come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He cannot because he will not. He does not want to. He is anti-God. These men who will not come, do they have an excuse? No, one day, folks, they will be speechless, absolutely speechless, in desperation and speechless without excuse. Go on. This king, he's very gracious, and he calls again, verse 4, And again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them what you're bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. You got the gospel in one verse there. Sinner, all things are ready. You don't have to bring a dish. You don't have to bring a wedding garment. In fact, you can't get in the door with anything. All things are ready. The king has provided everything. Why? Because the king killed. My oxen and my fatlings are killed. Salvation's done, sinner. All things are ready. There's absolutely nothing you need to do because God killed. God sent his only begotten son to be the sinner's substitute. He died under the wrath of God. The sins of everybody he died for were put away now, sinner, come to Christ. All things are ready. Come to the marriage. How do they respond? Verse 5. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew him. This gracious king. Come, all things are ready. Concerned with other things mocking the king, and then slew his servants because they hated the king and they hated the king's son. Folks, whatever happens to these folks' nests, and I think you can guess what happens, do they have an excuse? They're speechless. They're about to find themselves in a desperate situation too late, and they don't have an excuse. They're speechless. Look what the king does, verse 7. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth... And he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. Is there any injustice with the king there? Did the king do anything wrong? No, the king is gracious. The king called. He called the first time. They would not. He called the second time. They slew his servants. And now the king says, I've had enough. It's over for these folks. And the justice and the wrath of the king falls on them. And what are they going to say? Is there any injustice with God? No, absolutely not. No, they are speechless. They are without excuse. Now, look what the king does. Look at verse 8. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore to the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Folks, do we see the necessity of the sovereignty of God and salvation now? The king says they were not worthy. They would not come. A general call would do these people absolutely no good. Here's what you're going to do now, servants. You go out to the highways. You know who you find on the highways? Beggars and poor people. You go out to those highways. You're not sending an invitation this time. Take them by the hand. And bring them to the marriage supper. You wanna know why? Because my son is going to be glorified. That's why. We see now the necessity of a God who elects. If he doesn't choose before the foundation of the world, if he didn't choose from the foundation of the world who he would save and send Christ to save those distinct people and send his Holy Spirit to call those same people irresistibly and invincibly, who would be saved? Not a one. Not a one. You get mad at election and the sovereignty of God all you want. It's our hope. God has to be sovereign. If I'm to be saved, it must be by a sovereign God. I must be chosen. I must be irresistibly called. Because if I'm not, if I'm not taken hold of and taken to this marriage feast, I'll end up like these fellows that were desperate and without excuse. And I found out too late. Now, pick up verse 11 where we left off. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. He was without excuse. Folks, the very righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is free. The very sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ is free. The call is this. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest all that the father giveth me shall come to me and him that cometh to me I will in no wise for absolutely no reason cast him out that is the promise that is the call the garment was provided at the door and this man strolls in wearing his beggarly rags and why did he do that because he thought they were just as good as the king's garment the king will be pleased with this I'm gonna stand out I'm gonna get the king's attention well he did and he founds himself in a desperate situation and he finds out too late. He is speechless before this holy king. Now here's my point in all this. That's a very long way of getting to this one point. right, Folks, we are born in a desperate state, desperately wicked, desperately against God. And if we die of that state, we are without excuse. So what? What am I saying? Come to Christ. Come Believe on him, come to him in faith, and do it right now. Do not wait. You do not know when you are going to pass. You do not know when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. There is an exigency in this thing. This is a desperate state. Come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That is, in fact, the promise. Now, somebody says, great. What do you mean by that? What is faith? Do I have it? Have I been given this, this gift? Go back to your text. Let's see what it looks like. Mark 9, look at verse 19. The Lord speaks, he answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? Who's he talking to? Is he talking to the scribes that were berating his disciples? Yes. Is he talking about his disciples? Yes. Is he talking about the multitude that's standing around? Yes. Is he talking about the father and that son who is demon-possessed? Yes. Oh, faithless generation. Folks, everybody suffers with unbelief. The unregenerate man... The man we are that is born into this world, the way we are born into this world, he is faithless. He cannot and will not believe God. He cannot and will not trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the Lord Jesus Christ does not intercede for that man, he will die in that desperate state. And then you have the regenerate man. You have the Lord's people, those saved by the grace of God. And they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but just as the Father in this story says, Lord, I believe Help thou my unbelief. Why? Why can we say that? And it's absolutely true. It's the experience of every believer. Because that old man, that natural man, he's still there. He is still breathing down the backs of our necks, and he never believes God. And he is at war with that new man, that holy man, that always believes God, and they stay at war. So all we can say is just like this, Father, Lord, I believe. I do. I trust you. Help them, my unbelief, because you're the only one who can do something about it. Three things I want to show you about faith, true saving faith here. And what you can see, most of it, is found in what these characters, the opposite or the reverse of what some of these characters do. Look up here and look at verse 22. The father of this possessed boy speaks, and it says, And oftentimes it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, this man didn't have an ounce of faith right now. The Lord had not revealed himself to this man. And here's the reason we know it. He has a lack of confidence in Christ's ability. If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us. And we know he doesn't know who the Lord is at this point because he starts in verse 17 by saying master. Master, teacher, you're a good man, you're a prophet of God, you've got some power, master, master, I'm bringing my son unto you. He doesn't know who he's come to yet and he doesn't have confidence in his ability. We know that because this is the bedrock of faith, confidence in the ability of the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing I enjoy hearing Todd say, well, just about anything else when he's talking about faith is this. Faith has nothing to do with what you think about yourself. It has everything to do with what you think about Christ. Is he able? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Absolutely not. It says this, Isaiah 42, 4, he shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait For his law, he can't fail. He's God. If you're sovereign and your purposes are always done, that means you can't fail in your purposes. That means if he purposed to save you, if he purposed to save me, saved I must be because he's the one who's in control, he's the one who has all the power, he's the one who makes the rules. And he satisfies his own rules. He cannot fail. Has nothing to do with what you think about yourself. And we have those fears and those doubts all the time. Is he willing to save somebody like me? Has he really revealed himself to me? Do I really know him? I struggle with that. You struggle with that. We all struggle with that. What don't you struggle with? Is he able? By himself, is he able to save you with absolutely no help? from you in a manner to where he gets every aspect of the glory and that salvation. What do you think about that? Yes, and that's what's called confidence in his ability. That is the bedrock of faith. Look what happens next. Look at verse 23. This man says, if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us. Well, here's how the Lord responds. Verse 23, Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. Now what's he saying there? Is he saying, well, the reason I can't do anything for you is because you don't have strong enough faith, you don't believe in me appropriately. Is that what he's saying? If that's what he's saying, that means two things are true. He's not omnipotent, and salvation is not up to his blood and his grace. It's up to the will of man and man's ability to muster faith. It's not... You can't believe on me, so I can't do anything for you. What he's doing here is saying this He's turning the tables on this man. He's meeting him on the grounds this man came to him on. If you can do something, help us. He says, Well, can you believe? There's inability on the table, friend, but it's not on my side of the table, it's on your side of the table. It's not that I'm unable, I'm the Lord. I'm God. I control all things. There's nothing to that's too hard for me. You can't believe. There's inability here, but it all rests with you. You lack the ability to even believe. I have to even give you that. That's what he's saying here. Look how this man responds. One of the shorter messages I've ever heard anyone preach, but it had a great effect. Verse 24. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, notice that next word, Lord, not master. Verse 17, it was master, it was teacher. You're a great man, you've got some power. Now, Lord, what he told him, I'm in control, I'm God, I'm the Savior, I'm the one who does all things, he believed him. That's what happens when the Lord preaches the gospel to you. When he makes that word effectual to you, you believe he's the one who's in control. He's the one who's able. Whatever he purposes, he must perform. The bedrock of faith. He was given faith in just that little message right there. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. He's the Lord. He had confidence in his ability But I see another thing here too. This man is fully committed. Paul said this, I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. This man is fully committed. He has brought his son to the Lord for healing. He's brought himself to the Lord to save. And now you know what he's bringing? His unbelief. You're the one who gave the faith. You're the one who does the saving. You're the one who does it all. And now I'm even going to trust you to deal with this thing of my unbelief, coming to him for faith. He is fully and utterly committed. And there's a story that I think relays that point. It's probably one of my favorite stories in the Scripture. Turn over to Acts 27 for just a moment. Acts 27, Paul is a prisoner on a ship going to Rome, and they find themselves in a great storm, Euroclad. <clears throat> and so along the way, the Lord appears to Paul and says, Paul, don't worry, everybody in that ship, they're all going to be safe. They're all going to live. But the ship has to go down. The ship has to be destroyed. What a picture of the gospel. Everybody in Christ is going to be delivered safe and sound to the shore. The ship has to go down. Christ has to die. Well, he tells the crew members this, and then things get a little worse. The winds kick up. They think they're going to crash on some rocks. And look at verse 30 of Acts 27. Look at what these crew members do. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea under color, as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, So they have the promise. The promise is everybody in the ship is going to be safe. Paul tells these men, no doubt about it. And then these men are looking around. They get afraid. The winds are kicking up. The waves hit. There's rocks coming up. They're afraid the boat's going to crash against the rocks and they're all going to be killed. And they see something on that boat they hadn't noticed before. There was a lifeboat. There's a little tiny dinghy sitting there. And they get this unbelieving, wicked, illogical thought. I think we're going to be safer in that little tiny dinghy than we are in this big, huge ship. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Huge sea, winds kicking up, 50-foot waves. What do you want to be in, a huge ship that can cross the ocean? You want to be in a little rowboat. Which one? Say that's stupid and that's illogical. Folks, unbelief is stupid and illogical. Greater than what they could see is that this... Massive ship was much safer than the little dinghy. The promise of God was in the ship. He said everybody in the ship would be safe, but they said, I want to get in this little dinghy. I think I'm going to be a little bit safer in this little dinghy. You know what that is, folks? That's trusting our works. That's trusting something we do, something that comes from us. The Lord can have absolutely nothing to do with that. It's illogical. It's stupid. It's unbelieving because the Lord tells us all our works are as filthy rags. It's unrighteousness before God. Have no trust in this. Now look what happens. Look at verse 31. Paul said to the centurion, to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. Verse 32. Then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. There's one thing they had other than the ship, this little rowboat. They take the cords, they cut it, It falls off in the water, and they watch it drift off into the night. And they are left with the bare promise of God and the ship. That's called commitment. It's where you cut ties with everything but Christ and him crucified, and you fully commit to that, to him. I've got absolutely nothing but him. Every experience I had, who knows about it? All my works... Nothing before God. My best thought, self-motivated at best. All wickedness, all nothing. I got one thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's all my hope. That's commitment right there. And here's the thing. As long as we have a rowboat, we won't let go of it. Until the Lord comes to us and he shows us everything about us is wickedness and sin. We'll hold on to that boat. But when you see it for what it is, that it cannot save, that it cannot stand before God, it's easy to cut ties with it, and you just cling to Christ. Now, these are the three things I want to give you about faith. Number one, the bedrock of faith is this, confidence in Christ's ability. This is the second one, commitment. All your eggs are in this basket. You got nothing else. It's relatively easy for a sinner. We don't have anything else. All we have is Christ. And here's the third one what always accompanies faith, a destruction of any confidence in the flesh. I want you to look at Matthew's account of our text. Look at Matthew 17. Matthew 17 and look at verse 19. Matthew's account of of what we're reading. Verse 19 Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? That's a logical question. Lord said to them, I'm giving you power to cast out demons and to cast out devils. And I'm sure that they had gone along and they had done this several times, but all of a sudden they come to this boy who has this dumb spirit and they can't cast him out. So he said, Why? Why couldn't we do it this time? Verse 20, And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, For verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. What happened with the disciples? If the Lord bestowed upon you the gift to heal diseases and to cast out demons, and to do all these wonderful things, and you did it for long enough, what would happen? Eventually you start thinking, look what I'm doing. Look at this. Look at this power I have. I can cast out demons. I can heal diseases. All these things. This is what happened to the disciples. They forgot that the only power they had was the power the Lord gave them. And the Lord took it for a time so they would see this. Thou canst do nothing without me. That's it. It was taken from them. And here's the thing about faith. Every time it's given, everything about ourselves, every sense of self-sufficiency is blown out of the water, just taken away. And we're left with this. Look at what the Lord says here in verse 21. Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. What does he mean by that? How can a man be saved? How can it my sins can be taken out of me to where I bear them no more? How can I be sent out to where I actually stand before God without guilt, holy and unblameable and unreprovable? By fasting and prayer in this regard. What's fasting? It's voluntary suffering is what it is. It differs from starving in this way. Starving, there is no food, therefore you starve. Fasting is, I'm doing this voluntarily. I am suffering voluntarily. How can a man be presented to God blameless? The voluntary suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ for that man. That's it. And prayer. What is prayer from the standpoint of the Lord Jesus Christ? It's his intercession for his people. It's where he stands before his Father and he presents his people And he shows his father the wounds in his hands and his sides. And he says, accept them because me, because of what I've done. And the father said, I will receive every single person you offered yourself for. That's how man can be saved. It's not faith. Faith looks to that one who did the saving. That's it. Confidence is ability. Got nothing else. Committed to him. No confidence in yourself. Folks, that's faith. That's faith. And if you have that, you have that gift of God. We're born into utter desperation, folks. Utter desperation, sinful people before a holy God. But if the Lord's given you this gift, look to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. We'll stop there. Mm